Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, D.S. Latham. This is episode 105. Last we heard about the attack on the Ngwani at Mbolombo, west of Mtata, and the destruction of Matawani's raiders, sending him home back to Zululand, where he was eventually killed by Dinga. After the 1828 battle, hints of that Kaleka line of Amakosa and Nkumun Kuka, who was his rival, fell out spectacularly over the division of the spoils. They had gathered a booty of women, children and cattle. The British took about 70 children back to the colony, but appeared to be disgusted when the Amantembu and the Traleka Amakosa seized civilians for themselves. Not long after this, Hinsa's Bomvana allies attacked two of Nkumunkuka's subordinate clans and the Amantembu gave up their territory closer to the coast and moved further north. Enter Nkumunkuka's eldest son, Makoma, who will feature over the next quarter of a century of South Africa's amazing history. He was around 30 years old when he emerged following his father's death and his military leadership was going to become legendary. The British afforded him the kind of respect that they had later afford their Zulu enemies. He was to receive many verbal salutes over the next decade or two. On the frontier, he was regarded by all who met him as gallant and bold, although that didn't stop the Cape administration from evicting him from his land. As a friend, a most excellent one, but as an enemy, a most dangerous one, a British officer told Stockenstrom, while a missionary also said, Naked barbarian he may be, Matkoma has an intellectual character. And then something remarkable happened. Colonel Henry Somerset, the son of the disgraced ex-governor, built up a friendship with Matkoma. Quite extraordinary, really, because Henry, as you know, was neither naked nor of an intellectual character. Henry, who had slashed and burned Amatkoza and driven them out of the Cut River Valley, began to allow Matkoma's people back west into these pastures. The reason was that Henry believed that Makoma was very strict in managing the Makosa people and could be relied on to detect cattle thieves and restore stolen herds promptly. By 1829, however, Makoma, like his father Nguika, had taken to the bottle, and in particular to brandy. He moved his great place nearer to Fort Beaufort because it had an excellent canteen and his love of Cape Brandy became notorious. Cape Brandy remains a favourite South African tipple, perhaps mixed with a cola of some sort, or, if you're adventurous, ginger ale. I wouldn't know, being a teetotaler, but that's what I'm told. By 1829, Andre Stockenstrom was the Commissioner-General of the entire frontier, and Colonel Henry Somerset was its military commandant, and technically subordinate to Stockenstrom. However, it was never properly communicated who was in charge of whom. Neither Stockenstrom nor Somerset could operate on the basis other than their own willful characters, which was going to cause disruption along the Eastern Cape frontier. Stockenstrom, unlike Henry Somerset, did not like Makoma. He thought that Makoma chief's presence in the Kat River Valley was unacceptable, and he regarded Henry Somerset as an outsider interfering in colonial matters. Remember earlier explanations of how Andres had been so poorly treated by Henry's father, Lord Charles, and the enmity ran deep. Henry and Andres were an ill-suited pair to administer the frontier. Andres was cautious, worldly wise, with great experience of the Amatkosa, the Khoikhoi, the San, the Trekpurs. 
Henry was rash and blundering, so it was ironic to see him becoming a friend of Makoma, the Rarabe chief. By late 1820s, drought had also come to the frontier, and Makoma was living on some of the best watered lands in the territory. He considered these his birthright, this Kat River Valley region, which of course it was. Stockenstrom regarded the valley as land not belonging to anyone and valuable. Any eviction of Makoma, whose people by now had been living peacefully along the rolling hills around Fort Beaufort, Bedford, down the modern-day Fort Hare, would be ill-advised to say the least. But Stockenstrom convinced himself that Makoma was a problem. The Cape Governor by now was Lieutenant General Sir Lowry Cole, and yes, he was yet another veteran of the Peninsular Campaign against Napoleon. Old soldiers never died, they became governors of the Cape, you could say. He was also a member of the Anglo-Irish establishment, a famous and distinguished soldier, focused, unsentimental, not a liberal. When he heard a military argument about a solution to the Amakosa problem, his ears pricked up. It was the language he understood best. His predecessor, General Bork, who of course had followed Lord Charles Somerset, had forbidden the pursuit of cattle thieves beyond the colony's boundary and had also allowed the Amakosa to freely enter the colony to trade and work. But Sir Lowry put a stop to that. Ordinance 50, which had freed the Khoikhoi from servitude, was on everyone's lips, and Sir Lowry heard stories of how the Khoikhoi apparently had abused their rights to wander. They had become common vagrants, said the settlers. Worse, the Amakosa and the Khoikhoi were now stealing their cows. Something must be done, said the English farmers and the trekpoods. A new idea was to take root in Andri Stockenstrom's mind during an upcoming sea journey. It was a bad idea, but it was new, and this was to replace the Amakosa along the Kat River Valley with Khoikhoi and mixed-race Cape residents, a kind of buffer zone for a buffer zone. Society double-glazing. Stockenstrom believed the ceded territory a.k.a. Makoma's birthright, should be turned into a Khoikhoi settlement, which would then buffer the English and the Trek Boers against cattle raiding. The overarching plan made some sense, if the land was empty, but it wasn't. It was full of Amakosa cattle and their settlements. Salari, when he heard about the idea, wanted to distribute the Khoikhoi into agricultural settlements, little farms, alongside the towns where the settlers lived, which meant they could farm and work in town as labourers when required. Stockenstrom was cold about that idea. He worried that the Khoikhoi would be too close to the English settler towns and turn to drink. This is where the Mfitkani, the destabilization of the interior of South Africa, was to have an impact on the frontier of the Eastern Cape. You've heard about Matawani and Mzilikazi. Now the pressures of people moving en masse into the Transkai caused some Mtembu chiefdoms close to the frontiers and near Matkoma to begin shifting their homesteads. A fierce leadership dispute arose amongst the Mtembu, and subsequently Makoma felt obligated to intercede. They were on his border, after all, and he sent warriors who defeated a rebel group. They also seized about 3,000 cattle. The refugees and defeated rebels then flooded into the settler farms and the Cape Colony, complaining that Makoma had taken their herds. Stockenstrom listened to these Mtembu rebels and how Makoma had crushed them, and the British, you remember, were protecting the Mtembu. Makoma appeared to have caused more instability instead of protecting the status quo. Stockenstrom then travelled to Cape Town, where he was asked by Sir Lowry what should be done about Makoma. Stockenstrom was blunt. 
As the savage has broken his part of the contract, which was that he should live in peace, I am quite prepared to let him suffer the penalty and to expel him if you sanction it. Suggesting military action to an ageing veteran of the Peninsula campaign was like catnip to a leopard. Sir Lowry agreed, Matkoma must be dealt with and immediately. The odd one out of this conversation, of course, was Colonel Henry Somerset, who had honoured his friendship with the Amatkoza chief until now. Stockenstrom didn't waste time. Within a few days, he was on a ship sailing back to Algoa Bay to launch his special military operation. Just to stick the knife in, Henry Somerset was going to lead the assault on his erstwhile friend. It was during the journey home, Stockenstrom dreamed up the idea of chasing the Amatkoza from the Kat River and inserting the Koikoi. At least, that's what he claimed later. Stockenstrom further suffered from the illusion that the Amatkoza would accept their lot as a defeated people, although he admitted Matkoma may indulge in acts of vengeance. But these would be limited because, Stockenstrom wrote, that they are fully aware that even as to the possession of their country, they are entirely dependent on the policy the government may adopt. This is a disease South African politicians appear to suffer from over whatever colour. The belief that citizens are dependent on them, whereas the opposite obviously holds true. So it came to pass on the 2nd of May, 1829, that a 300-strong commander of British soldiers and Trekboers, with a spattering of Khoikhoi, arrived at Matkoma's great place at daybreak, led by Colonel Henry Somerset. Glasgow missionary Alexander McDermott, as well as John Ross and their families from the mission station called Balfour, watched what happened just over one and a half kilometres from the kraal. Matkoma fled into nearby woods. Some of his people took off into the uplands with cattle. Stockenstrom, who was alongside Somerset, sent messages into the thicket. Eventually, Matkoma agreed to come and negotiate. Stockenstrom shook his hand, then delivered a long speech about how the Amam Tembu had been mistreated, how Matkoma had disrupted the peace. He should return all cattle and until then was considered an enemy. But meanwhile, the British would set about burning all his huts and destroying his kraals. So much for pacifying matters, the British themselves deployed the very same methods as Makoma in order to ensure peace on the frontier. The glaring contradiction completely escaped Stockenstrom's attention. Makoma was evicted from his land and forced to give up his treasure, his cattle. The missionaries observing matters approached and complained to Stockenstrom that as far as they were aware, Matkoma had been asked to intercede in the Amam Tembu uprising to quell the rebels. He was doing their bidding. Even the pro-colonial historian George Corey, and one who was indefatigably hostile to Matkoma, writing later, felt that Tembu's warring had led to Matkoma stepping in to settle things down. In a nutshell, the Cape Colonial Authority had interfered in a quarrel that did not concern them. The two quarrelling Tembu chiefs had died, meanwhile, and Makoma, who was never given a proper hearing, was punished for something he'd always done, stabilise his boundaries by inserting his power into a contested space. Colonel Henry Somerset headed off to meet with his former friend, whereupon Makoma delivered a memorable speech that included these lines. I'm glad I have heard there's a God, he said. He will judge us. I am a man who does not know God yet. I rejoice. He will be the judge. Somerset was embarrassed, 
and later offered to meet with Matkoma and drink some Cape brandy together. Matkoma refused, and from that day onwards he distrusted Henry for his duplicitousness. One minute a friend, next sending three hundred armed colonists and soldiers to ransack his great place and chasing him from his traditional land based on some or other pretext. So the British began burning Macorma's huts on a Sunday, despite the missionaries pointing out it was the Sabbath and Christians didn't do that. The British troops stopped, waited until the missionaries left. Then once again, once the men in black were out of sight, set fire to the kraals with gusto. The British troops involved in this destruction were also clearly not happy going about this business. As the fires lit up the night sky, one Amakosa man called out to them and asked why they were burning his home. It seemed difficult to make a reply, said an officer. There was a general silence throughout the party. They were ashamed. The Balfour missionaries were nonplussed because the British officers, including Somerset, had visited them for breakfast only that very morning. Fortunately for them, Matkoma recognized the missionaries were not behind the carnage, telling them later it wasn't their fault he'd been attacked. He'd been watching these men and women of the cloth for months, toiling in the hot African sun, building houses, a church, watercourses and gardens. John Ross's wife, Helen, was beside herself with unhappiness. We began to prepare for our departure from a land without any people. Which was Stockenstrom's plan, but soon the land would have people. Three weeks after Matkoma's eviction, the missionaries left as well. The expulsion spurred Matkoma's own anti-colonial militancy, rankling him for the rest of his life. He was to die 25 years later and never forgave Somerset, the British, or the settlers. This new Cut River settlement was mired in controversy from day one. A most desirable portion of frontier landscape had been summarily seized by the Cape government and the controversy it caused would continue all the way to the apartheid-era Bantustan of Siskai in the 1970s and 80s. The Cut River is a tributary of the Great Fish that drains the southern slopes of the Winterbach. It is 150 kilometers long and rises north of Fort Beaufort in the Cutbach escarpment of the Winterbach. It forms a northern boundary of the Great Fish River, northeast of Fort Brown, and flows into the ocean south of Hamburg. Within a month of Matkoma's eviction, the first Khoikhoi and Bastard settlers began occupying the Cut River lands. Stockenstrom had observed how the British organized the 1820 settlers and copied their playbook, organizing this new colony along similar lines. The 400 square miles of territory was divided into locations of between 4,000 and 6,000 acres each with hamlets and villages. Inside these, each individual would receive between four and six acres and everyone would share pasturage land known as commonage. Each new Khoi Khoi colonist, if that doesn't sound too contradictory a phrase, would be, in Stockenstrom's words, of character who possess stock. What really happened was a little different. Some of the new arrivals were indeed men of character who possessed stock, but the Cut River was also a magnet for impoverished vagrants. And yet, at the start, an incredible transformation took place and rapidly. The settlements prospered quite quickly. Irrigation canals were cut from the rivers and the streams, even through solid rock. European-style Cape Dutch houses appeared, churches and schools were built, and new towns grew out of the seized land, the ceded land, as the British called it, 
And these took on new names of the philanthropists and the missionaries like Philipton, Reedsdale, Wilberforce, Buxton. No shop was allowed to sell alcohol inside the Cut River settlement. There were no white officials minding the business. This was all run by the Khoikhoi and mixed-race people of the Cape. The local magistrates were Khoikhoi. The Cut River settlement was also in a very beautiful part of southern Africa, hemmed in by high mountains, snow-covered in the winter and blessed with fast-flowing clear streams. The sermons on Sundays were full of comparisons with the children of Israel. They'd now found their promised land, delivered from the pharaoh, who the Khoikhoi, by the way, regarded as the Trekboers and the English settlers. This new immigration was a testament to Sir Lowry Cole and Stockenstrom, at least at first. Visitors noted how the young Khoikhoi girls in particular took to schooling, excelling in learning and speaking Greek. Imagine, if you can, the sight of these youngsters of the African felt reciting Homer. The desire for education meant the parents sent their children to schools from the age of three. A visiting American missionary popped into one of these new schools and wrote, It was, Of 84 children taught by a lad of 17 without a shirt on his back and clad in the meanest manner. As the Cut River flourished, little gardens grew into small farms. The hamlets expanded. Cattle became fat. Orchards of fruits sprung up and simultaneously white settler resentment increased. The English settlers had spent a decade trying to get their stony ground to bear harvests and here were the Khoikhoi farmers doing it in a quarter of the time. The ramifications were broad because the Khoikhoi and Bastards were aware that they'd gained their advantage over the Amakosa and this made the missionaries uneasy. The Cut River settlement was very much a Cape government success, but missionary James Reed was roped in by Stockenstrom, and it was Reed who personally led the first party from Theopolis mission to Cut River. Reed was replaced as chief chaplain soon afterwards by the authorities, aware of his sympathies with the Khoi, just to ensure that the Cut River settlement did not become a hotbed of London missionary society action. The stoic company preacher, William Ritchie Thompson was installed as government missionary. Thompson moved into the partially abandoned Glasgow station at Balfour, so recently vacated by Helen and John Ross, but Reed's version of God appeared to resonate more precisely and profoundly with the Khoikhoi than Thompson's, and he continued to administer to the people. The well-off and well-heeled Khoi farmers preferred Reed. Thompson's flock, who called themselves bastards, said they were superior to what they called Reed's Hottentots. This reinforced the more insidious values from the Cape, reinforcing class and race. Thompson began preaching to his flock at Glasgow Station that they, the bastards, were in fact superior to the Khoikhoi because they had colonial blood flowing in their veins. James Reed's more equanimous version of the New Testament appeared to hold sway for the next 20 years, much to the anger of the settlers, as you're going to hear. No one likes to feel superior and yet be called equal. Eventually, the Cut River Settlement residents were going to rise up against the British, but that's a long way off, in the 1850s. What emerged from 1830 onwards was to warp perceptions of settler life for quite a while. From now on, every single event of interest that occurred here was seen as the result of the evil genius of James Reed. He was going to be accused of every crisis along the frontier. His radicalism, that he caused the Khoikhoi to be lazy. Eventually, he was directly accused of fomenting conspiracy and rebellion. 
By this time, 1830, Reed had nine mixed-race children himself. He'd married a young coy woman called Elizabeth Valentine. Their eldest son was James Reed Jr., who'd been born in 1811, and who took after his dad by starting a school at Phillipton, helped by his brother Joseph. So from the moment Macomber was driven away in 1829, South Africa entered a period of accelerating crisis. And this crisis, folks, had severe consequences, which re-echo to this day. You see, this was another turning point in our history. The colony would be drawn into another war. The concepts of separateness began to compress and solidify. Many people shifted their outlook and view of each other right now, in these five years between 1830 and 1835. Up stepped, at this moment, a person that Andre Stockenstrom called perhaps the most degraded character in the whole colony, who was to create such malevolence, it's hard to talk about him in a reasonable way. His name was Vinant Besednot. This Trekboer's motives were unclear, but he'd thwarted authority his entire life, and in a somewhat dim-witted way, tried to take advantage of the Amat Khosa. He was always trying to ensure that the British and the Khosa remained at each other's throats, that Khosa distrusted him completely, calling him a liar and a robber. So Colonel Henry Somerset should have known better when Mr. Besodenot appeared before him in August 1829, announcing that massive preparations were underway amongst the Dararabe Amakosa for an invasion of the colony. Stockenstrom wrote in his journal that Besodenot's reputation was so bad, no Boer would have believed him, but for some reason British officer Henry Somerset did. He was to set off a colony-wide alarm based on the word of a single man who was not believed by his own people. So Lowry Cole prepared to leave Cape Town for the frontier to take charge when he received word of this imminent invasion. Stockenstrom, to his credit, believed none of this. He interrogated Besednot and found, as he suspected, that the whole tale of a planned Amakosa attack was fabricated. He had contradicted himself in every way, said Stockenstrom. But Besednot's wild rumour spread through the pubs and the meeting houses, and when the settlers heard that Colonel Henry was mobilising troops, the Amakosa heard about it too. What was really going on was a symptom of the paranoia where cultures intersect. The poisonous atmosphere between various colonists on one side, driven by intersectional jealousy, connivance, confusion, and the levelling of Macomas' kraals on the other. Then to compound the rumour-mongering, a member of the equally infamous Prinsloer clan popped up, announcing that the Khoikhoi were also part of this conspiracy and were going to fight alongside the Amakosa in attacking the settlers. Henry Somerset rushed off to the Cut River settlement, where he found everyone worshipping in church, and Reed was somewhat bemused by his flustered presence. Stockenstrom publicly scoffed at Somerset's marching about trying to find conspiracy, and now their dislike for each other created the human folly that compounds any political situation. Meanwhile, drought aggravated the fumbling attitudes. Colonists and Amakosa alike were suffering as the sun blazed down. The sky poured its malevolence on the land. Amakosa rustling increased. The British began increasing their hated patrols and the threats to raid the chiefs who were supposed to control these rustlers. The Khoikhoi were also being rustled in the Kat River settlement but they instituted a protective defensive network where all the men turned out to fight off these marauders. But the Trekboers and English settlers preferred to lock themselves in their farmhouses 
when these Amat Khosa raiders arrived, allowing the Khosa to seize the cattle, then calling for a massive commando as retribution. At the very core of the cause of the next war was this patrol system, or reprisal system, the Spur Law. These patrols were going to collide with the more militant Amat Khosa, who were itching for their own form of retribution. Meanwhile, in Port Natal to the north, the English colonists and the Amazulu were getting along just fine. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. If you have the inclination, it helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.